a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience. And a quick shout out to my sponsors. I want to thank uh, Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance uh, for coming on board as sponsors of the show. Hey, I'm happy to welcome my fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos on the program again. Hello, Eric. Hello, Brian. Good to be here. What do you want for Christmas? <laughs> I want normal. How about you? Well, yeah, I, I, I actually hope uh, that I find Santa's face underneath my tree. <laughs> I can actually see who I'm looking at, not some masked bandito coming out of the chimney. You know, I, I, I try not to obsess over this because some of the unhappiest people I know are the people who are glued to the tube. Oh, what are the latest COVID sure. numbers? Oh, how deadly is it? What? There's a mutating strain in the UK? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to keep track of, well, what do they have in store mm-hmm. for us next? You know, is it going to be the jab? Is it going to be something else? Um, tell me about what uh, what you're seeing on your radar screen. Um, what commands your attention regarding, you know, the whole COVID uh, debacle? Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned something that I was going to bring up, which is the new strain. Now, it's, it's almost uh, as predictable as Pravda during the Brezhnev era that when people's hysteria begins to wane a little bit, they amp it up with some new thing. At first, they went from the body count, which never materialized, to the cases, the cases. But I think that is beginning to wear a little bit thin. And uh, the compliance with the wearing of the holy rag edicts and all of the rest of it, um, from what I can gather, is beginning to decline a little bit. So now, of course, almost like, like you threw a light switch, you see it in every outlet, hear it all over the radio, there's a new strain of the corona, you know? And they're going to use that to whip up and maintain the hysteria, which is just necessary to perpetuate this thing, uh, which, as you and I talked about a little bit off the air, is not all that it's cracked up to be. Um, I know this is anecdotal, but I wrote an article that was premised on a letter that I received from one of my readers who talked about his experience with the Wu flu. And what he experienced was, drum roll, here we go, more or less a bad cold that lasted for a few days, and he did not have to get intubated or ventilated or even go to the hospital. He went to see his doctor, and his doctor said, just go home, get some rest, uh, take some over-the-counter cold medicine, and you'll be fine, which he was. And that is typical for 99.8-something percent of the general population. Yeah, that's and that's been the experience with most of the people I know. Now, look, I have known a couple of people who have ended up on ventilators. And, and in each case, they were people who had pretty serious comorbidities. You know, and, and yep. so it's it's not a it's not a cut and dry thing. I'm not going to say it's going to affect everybody the same, but like you said, for the majority of people, it's really not that big of a deal. Why do we act like you know if if you're if you're diagnosed with it, you might as well you know just go ahead and lay down in your grave, and we'll start shoveling dirt in on you. Because of weaponized hypochondria, you know, uh, to just pull up an analogy, it's it's really not that big a deal for me to walk down to my mailbox, which is probably an eighth of a mile down the gravel driveway. In a, in a blizzard uh, where it's 20 degrees because uh, I'm not elderly, I'm in good shape, and it'll be unpleasant. I won't enjoy the experience, 
but I'll be able to trudge down and get the mail and come back to the house without a problem. I wouldn't send my 84-year-old mother, though, out in the 15-degree weather in the snowstorm to go get the mail because she's elderly and she's not got the reserves of strength and health that I have. And for her, something like that would be dangerous. And that's the thing to understand here. This, this virus is no different fundamentally than any other virus uh, in that people who are vulnerable, which is you know, older people and people who have these other problems, of course they're vulnerable. But the rest of us aren't, and we should stop living our lives in mortal terror of something that doesn't kill 99.8% of the healthy population. I'm actually becoming more concerned about the vaccine. And it's not that I'm saying nobody should get the vaccine, but it's being held up as a panacea. And I don't know if you saw yeah. the video um, a few days ago, uh, this this nurse and these these health uh, uh, health officials. Who passed out? Yeah, the nurse who passes out on television after she gets the shot. Yeah. It was like, wow, you've built my yeah. confidence here, folks. Mm-hmm. Well, you use exactly the right word, a panacea. In other words, uh, that this is a no-risk proposition that, just uh, extend your arm, get the jab, and all will be well. And that is egregiously dishonest because vaccines do have side effects. There is risk. I'm not saying there aren't benefits, but there are also risks. And my objection is to being pressured by people to assume a risk that for many of us actually turns out to be more serious than the risk of the supposed threat. Um, you know, in our case, for example, we stand much less a risk of dying from coronavirus than we do of getting a side effect from a vaccine. And so for that reason, I myself will not be vaccinated because I don't want to take the risk, which is not small. I think it's something on average on the order of one out of 40 people who get a vaccine, and this is just general regardless of the vaccine, have some kind of a side effect. I don't want any part of that. You know, I mean, I've been fine. I'm not worried about the Wu flu. I've been out there without my diaper on. I don't have a diaper and I have not been practicing sickness kabuki, and guess what? I'm not sick, so please spare me. Keep it away from me. I want no part of it. In the words of Greta Thunberg, how dare you? (laughs) Well, sure. You know, literally, you know, it's funny, but it's not, because if you think about it, is there anything more despicable than violating somebody's body? And it's ironic that the, the, the greatest cry for violating people's bodies is coming from the hard left, and the hard left is exactly the cohort that says, it's my body, it's my choice. You know, when it comes to the abortion issue, but when it comes to the vaccine issue, all of a sudden it's not your body and it's not your choice. No, that's a good point. I'm seeing a lot of people, though, from the middle and even to the right of the political spectrum that uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, the, the virtue signaling train pulled through blowing its horn. and They wanted to get on board. Yep. I saw a post on Facebook yesterday where someone was like, well, I just saw a video of a friend at a party where there were 40 people and a live band and nobody was masked. And I got to tell you, I unfriended yep. a bunch of them and I lost respect for that person. And I'm thinking, really? You weren't mm-hmm. there. Why do you even care? Right. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a tragic thing uh, the direction the country is taking in terms of this this um, rabid busybodyism where it's not enough just to kind of, you know, you're maybe not comfortable with what your neighbor is doing or you don't approve of what they're doing. And you say, well, you know, live and let live. He can do his thing and I'll do mine. Now it's Mrs. Kravitz with a gun. Remember Mrs. Kravitz from that great 60s sitcom Bewitched? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, who would, who would sit there and look out of her curtain to see what the, what, what the Stevens were up to. And whenever she saw anything suspicious, she would screech and yell and call the cops. And that was an object of ridicule as recently as the 60s. I know it's 50 years ago, but not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And now that kind of person is being presented as somebody who is admirable. And that is a, a morality inversion that's really hard to get your head around. No, I, I agree. And, and look, if somebody wants to wear the mask, if somebody wants to get the vaccination, I will not be the one to stand in their way or to tell them you shouldn't do that. 
but yeah. I I think I expect. You know, under the golden rule, if I'm going to treat you that way, I expect to be treated the same way. You let mm-hmm. me live my life according to my best understanding, and I'll let you do the same, but don't force me. Yeah, and it's too bad that it's the arbitrary rule. These, these people who are the most virulent about uh, the corona stuff uh, will, on the other hand, defend vigorously uh, other things that one could characterize as just as risky using their same language. I, uh, I fell out with a friend of mine. Uh, who is a big gun guy, has lots of guns, likes guns, and is a staunch 2A guy uh, over this whole uh, sickness kabuki thing. You know, he was telling me I'm a bad person for not walking around in a face diaper and because I'm putting other people at risk. And I said, do you not appreciate that the people who are trying to take your guns away are saying precisely the same thing? They say that because you possess lethal weapons that you might go out and shoot somebody and that it's even worse because you actually do possess the lethal weapons, whereas I'm not even sick. But it doesn't register with these people. Well, I don't know what it's going to take to bring people back to their senses. I think it was Charles Mackey who talked about, we go mad in herds, but we only come to yes. our senses slowly and one at a time. I see people starting to return to their sanity, but, uh, but man, the herd is still running at full stampede, it appears. Oh, it is. And this is why, and I know we talk about this often, but I think it's very, very important that we continue to talk about it. It's why it's so important for each individual to make, uh, to take a stand and to separate themselves from the herd to wherever possible, not wear that holy rag, if they, you know, assuming they were, don't, don't want to wear the holy rag, and at minimum, uh, make it so that they have to tell you to put it on. Don't just do it because there's a sign on the door. And when you see somebody else in a store or in a restaurant who is showing their face, uh, I know it's a little uncomfortable, I'm kind of an introvert, but walk up to them and, and say thank you. It's really nice to see another sane person in the joint. And when you deal with a business that doesn't push all of this kabuki on you, make the effort to thank the owner if you can or the person behind the counter and say, you know, I really appreciate you're not buying into all of this. You'd be surprised how many people will say, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's great to talk to you. I've, I've made lots of, of new friends by doing this, and I, I urge more people who are listening to this to consider doing it themselves. It's, it's great how far just a small word of encouragement will go at times like this. Eric, hold that thought. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Please check out the show notes where you'll find links to the various articles that we talk about. You'll find a link to Eric's website as well. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. And Eric, I thought of you a couple of days ago when I learned that my son-in-law and my daughter in Germany had just bought a new car. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, cool. They, they had a BMW. So I was like, all right. They, they have good taste in vehicles. Hopefully they've, they've gotten something great. And I was a little bit crestfallen when I learned, yeah, they bought an electric car. And I went, oh. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, only they, if only they would read, my friend Eric, they might learn that uh, there's, there's more to the electric car than just that sense of I'm saving the environment. Uh, you had a well, recent, there is. You had a commentary on this recently. Yeah, well, I'll begin by saying um, I, you know, I feel some 
sympathy for them because in Germany, it's almost, in a bizarre way, a sound decision to buy an electric car because the government has announced that it will be verboten to buy other than an electric car, I think, by 2030. And they've already imposed bans on their use in a number of areas. So, you know, you've got this tag team thing of if you buy a non-electric car right now in Europe, um, the depreciation is going to really be horrendous because people are not going to want to buy it because it'll be useless in a few years. And, of course, it's useless now in a lot of areas if you've got a car where you, you, know, you can't drive to the city because only electric cars are allowed. So I get it for them. I just hope that we don't get it here. Yeah, I, I, a year ago, right now, I was sitting in Germany. I traveled over there for Christmas, and, and there were a lot of things I really enjoyed as I looked around. Something that struck me, though, as, as I spent time in Germany and also in the Netherlands, was I was, I was amazed at the amount of um, emphasis on green energy. Lots and lots mm-hmm. of wind turbines, offshore wind turbines. I mean, they were everywhere that you could see. Mm-hmm. And so I get it. You know, they're looking at, you know, ways to generate electricity, to, to use clean energy. But there, there are some downsides to the electric car. And I love in, in, your, in your recent mm-hmm. article, you actually, uh, you brought back a line from Pee Wee's Great Adventure, mm-hmm. our big adventure back in 1985, about what people aren't hipped to, dude. <laughs> Right, exactly, and that's you know, that's uh, it's of a piece with people not being hipped to the facts about what's going on with the Wu flu. It's the same with the electric car; they're being presented in a hagiographical manner as uh, a a great leap forward, as something that's going to be better than the non-electric cars that most people are driving now, and that's simply not true. You know, the the obvious one is the cost; they're substantially more expensive. We're not just talking about Oh, you're going to spend an extra fifteen hundred bucks. You're talking about going from a typical fifteen or sixteen thousand dollar entry level economy car to a thirty two thousand dollar entry level uh, electric economy car. Uh, and in addition to that, you're also going to pay in terms of the weight. Uh, you know, everybody knows about the the recharge times, which are considerable, and the limited range. What they also don't understand is that there really is no, at least now current technological way to get around that it's 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 not like a gas station where you have fuel in the tanks in the ground and you can pump the gas from the tank into the car and be on your way uh electricity isn't stored like that it has to be sent over lines and these lines have to be very heavy gauge uh to handle the kind of current that you're talking about with electric cars or even a single electric car which has a 400 to 800 volt battery and when you have multiple electric cars charging up at the same time, you need industrial-grade charging equipment, and that just doesn't exist. And nobody seems to want to talk about where the money is going to come from to pay for all of this or where the generating capacity is going to come from to power all of this. It simply doesn't exist. Uh, in this country, on the order of 80 to 85 percent of grid power is produced by coal, oil, and natural gas. And it's great to talk about, oh, let's have renewable energy fine, but you're talking about replacing 80 to 85 percent of the grid. How's that going to happen? Wow. Well, and you mentioned, too, the, the recharge times. Uh, this is something that my kids and I were talking about. Oh, how nice. Brooke and Oliver got themselves a new electric car. And I said, well, mm-hmm. you know, because we're, we're going to gas up the car. And I'm like, watch how long it takes us to gas up the car. And then I want yep. you to keep in mind that nifty electric car of theirs is going to take three to five times as long just to get a partial charge, much less a full one. Yeah, and that's if you have access to a fast charger. People aren't clued into this, again, because they haven't been hipped to this. 
uh, your typical house has a 220 uh, amp or volt service. Uh, it does not have the, the, the service necessary to power a fast charger. So the very best you're going to get at home, unless you have industrial-grade uh, wiring inside your house, is a partial recharge in about an hour or two. You know, if you plug it into a standard outlet, it's going to be uh, overnight. It's going to be 10 to 12 hours. So in order to get the so-called fast charge, which is a minimum of 15 to 30 minutes to get a partial charge, because batteries can't be fully charged up without damaging them and, and, and triggering fires and degradation of the battery, you've got to wait there for 15 to 30 minutes. Now, what if somebody's ahead of you in the line? Then you're going to wait for him to charge. So now you've doubled yeah. your charge time. What if you're the third guy in line? Now you're going to sit there for two hours to wait to get back on the road. And you think about how all of this scales and magnifies and extrapolates if you have millions and millions of these electric cars out there. And it is a recipe for a bottleneck and a reduction in mobility that I think most people have absolutely no comprehension of. And if they did, uh, I think they'd call a halt to this EV mania. Well, you know, I don't want to deny anybody, you know, the joy of driving their new Tesla. I think they're really neat-looking cars, and um, I, I've never actually ridden in one. So if anybody wants to really try to convert me, I'd say go for it. But there are some downsides that you've pointed out here. And, and as, as much as I might think, wow, that's a cool-looking car, those downsides would be enough to make me think twice or maybe more than twice before I ever dropped the coin on one. Of course. And uh, you can talk about this all day. But another thing to talk about that I think people should be aware of is the inherently shorter useful service life of an electric car due to the fact or due to the facts about chemistry and batteries. Batteries, they degrade over time because when you charge, discharge, charge, discharge, like any other battery, they begin to lose their capacity to hold a charge. They're not going to last for the 15 plus years that is something that you can easily expect out of any new car that you buy before it begins to start to fall apart. A typical new car, if you take any kind of care of it, will go close to 20 years before it gets to the point you kind of have to chuck it and get another one. But with electric cars, 8 to 10 years out, or even sooner, you may be looking at having to replace that battery. And having to replace the battery in an electric car is not like replacing that 12-volt starter battery in a conventional car. You're talking about 1,000 pounds of battery pack, typically. That's a Tesla Model 3 at a cost of between four to six to eight thousand dollars depending on the vehicle are you know who's going to do that you know with an eight or nine or ten year old car you just throw it away or even if you don't throw it away that kind of a cost is absolutely crippling yeah okay well enough raining on the parade of the uh, the electric car people Mm -hmm. let's talk about uh we've got about two minutes left here eric sure Um, tell me looking ahead to 2021 any car models that excite you? I know you're the guy who kind of gets the inside scoop on this. Yep. Well, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the Hellcat-ized version of the Ram 1500 pickup, and I'll, I'll decrypt that a little bit for you. Uh, some people will know about the uh, Dodge Challenger and Charger Hellcats, which have the supercharged version of the famous Chrysler Hemi V8 that makes between 700 to 900 horsepower. Well, uh, Fiat Chrysler, which owns Ram and, 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 and Dodge, bless their hearts, bless their dark hearts. They're going to put that powertrain <laughs> into the Ram 1500 pickup. Dang, and what, what kind of horsepower are they going to be getting, 700 to 900? 700 to 900 horsepower. So you're going to have a half-ton truck that should be able to run the quarter mile in about 11 seconds. Wow. How are they going to get traction? Because trucks are kind of notoriously light in the rear. Well, with four-wheel drive. I'm sure they're going to fit it out with a really heavy-duty version of their four-wheel drive system, which is what they did in the Jeep Cherokee, Grand Cherokee Trackhawk, 
which is a great stealth missile. That thing also has the Hellcat drivetrain uh, pumping out through the, the all-wheel drive system, and you can run a 10-second quarter mile in that thing in the rain, whereas you can't, you know, on the dry pavement with the rear-wheel drive Challenger and Charger Hellcats, those things will just lick, lick greasy rubber patches all over the road at the, at the drop of the throttle. Well, I appreciate you letting me and many others like me live vicariously through your efforts and through your testing of these cars, so I'll be watching with great anticipation for you to get your hands on one of these. You bet. You'll be the first to know. I'll send you pictures on the phone as soon as I get one. (laughs) Sounds great. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest. Have a Merry Christmas, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise, Brian. You and your family and everybody listening as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. All right, I know the question that's been on a lot of people's minds, my own included, since about mid-March has been, okay, when will things get back to normal? And I think that's a pretty normal sentiment. I don't think anybody's out of their mind to be asking those kind of things. When's it going to get back to normal? When will we see things return to what we once took for granted? And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the writing on the wall is not very encouraging. Take, for instance, this essay from Daisy Luther, published today on lewrockwell.com. And this is uh, Daisy blogs under the, uh, the name The Organic Prepper. Her take is is not uh, particularly good news, but I think it's a truth worth facing. And she says, look, we may be facing a future where life only goes back to normal for extremely wealthy people. Now, if that sounds like, oh, great, we're going to rail against the rich. What is this, class warfare? Listen to, listen to what she's saying and tell me if this doesn't make sense. She says, as jobs and businesses vanish and prices go up, Americans could soon face another expense, that is the expense of proving that they're healthy. While the government tells us the COVID vaccinations are going to be free, she says, are they really? Let's take a look. How much will it actually cost to get vaccinated against COVID? Now, while the government is paying for the vaccine itself, it still is going to cost money for people to get injected with it. She quotes from an article here. However, providers will be able to bill you an administrative fee for giving the shot to patients, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This would be similar to paying a charge when you visit a doctor's office or a specialized vaccine delivery or like like infusion, a process in which a substance like medication, a chemotherapy drug or hydration enters the bloodstream intravenously. Now, if you don't have insurance, the medical provider you used should be reimbursed for any COVID-19 treatment you receive through the CARES Act Provider Relief Fund at no cost to you. If you receive a bill for administration fees, it's still unclear whether or not those will be covered in full. It's a good idea to contact your local provider or health insurance company for more details on whether you'll be charged additional fees before receiving a vaccine. It might be, that, might be that you have more than one option for immunization, including finding a medical provider that would give you the vaccine free of charge or offer a more straightforward approach to reimbursement if you're charged, end quote. 
So she says it's kind of free, sort of, unless somebody charges you, but then you might be able to get your money back. Multiply your number, multiply this rather, by your number of family members. And what about all the apps for proving you've got vaccinated? What Will that be government-funded, or will people pay a few bucks to the app store to download that onto their smartphones? In fact, what about people who don't have phones? And what about those who can no longer afford phone service? She says, I think it's pretty easy to see that this could become an escalating expense for some and completely unaffordable for others. And if you've never been in a position where an added $5 of expense could make or break your grocery bill, then this may be difficult for you to understand how tough this could be on families who've suddenly found themselves living in ever-deepening poverty. How will you manage if you can't prove that you're COVID-free? She says soon all sorts of businesses and services may require people to prove that they don't have COVID with a recent test, probably not a free one once people are doing the tests for recreational purposes, or proof of vaccination. But that's not all. Schools and workplaces may make proof of health mandatory as well. So what happens if you can't afford your vaccine or documentation? Does that mean your kids can't go to school and that you can't go to work? What if you've been out of work for months, but to get a new job, you have to show your proof of health and or vaccination? What about public transit? She says, I'm not talking about flights to Europe. I'm talking about taking the bus or an Uber so you can get to work. What about entering stores? As private businesses, they have the right to choose those with whom they do business as long as discrimination can't be proven. How can a poor person get from point A to point B if they can't afford vaccination and proof of vaccination? She says, who needs a social credit system when you can just shut down entire sectors of society because they can't provide proof that they've gotten their shots? You don't like the little rabies tag your dog gets for his collar after he's vaccinated by the vet? Now, look, if you're like me, you don't want to believe this. I'm struggling to think that that could be a possibility. But given what we've seen over the last nine months, tell me that it's not plausible. Tell me that it's not potentially going to be the reality that we all face. And I think the worst reality is, tell me that, uh, that a majority of people won't line up and, and do it like obedient sheep. They're scared. Of course they're going to do it. Their livelihoods depend on it. Back to Daisy's article. She says, the transfer of wealth has been enormous and will continue to be. COVID and the subsequent government restrictions have all but wiped out the middle class, sweeping millions of formerly financially comfortable families into debt and poverty as they struggle to survive. Countless businesses have collapsed under the weighty mandates. Chapter 11 bankruptcies are up by 48% this year. Meanwhile, enormous corporations like Walmart, Home Depot, and Amazon, they've seen soaring profits. Jim Cramer, a financial analyst for CNBC, calls it one of the greatest transfers of wealth in history. Quote, the coronavirus pandemic and corresponding lockdown made way for one of the greatest wealth transfers in history, CNBC's Jim Cramer said on Thursday. The stock market is rising as big business rebounds from state-ordered stoppage of non-essential activity, while small businesses drop like flies, the Mad Money host said. The bigger the business, the more it moves the major averages, and that matters because this is the first recession where big business is coming through virtually unscathed, if not going for the gold, he added. 
Now, Kramer believes that the recovery of the stock market has little or nothing to do with the recovery of the economy at large, for which his outlook is grim. Although he supports another stimulus package for small businesses, it's unlikely to be enough. Again, from the article, the companies that took the money just got a big break. They only need to spend 60% on their employees to get the loans forgiven, down from the original 75%. That's important, as most small businesses fail because they can't afford to pay the rent. But in the end, the stimulus package probably won't be enough for one simple reason. It's not going to work because of social distancing. And he's right. What good will paying the rent do aside from short-term good for the property owner? If nobody is allowed to patronize the business due to more government-mandated shutdowns. So what happens next? Well, Daisy Luther says as these giant companies rake in the profit and mom-and-pop businesses go under, what happens next? Finding a job right now is next to impossible, and it soon will be even harder as a second wave of lockdowns intensifies. More businesses will go under. More jobs will disappear. And then the much-vaunted vaccine will arrive to save the day, also making a hefty profit for Big Pharma. Don't leave them out when you think about this transfer of wealth. It'll save the day for those who can afford it anyway, and for those who can afford to prove they've gotten it. And again, she quotes from another article, the rollout of the vaccine isn't going to happen overnight either. There are over 330 million people in the U.S., but Pfizer says it expects to send the U.S. 25 million doses by the end of 2020, or enough to vaccinate about 12.5 million Americans, as each recipient will need two doses. So that's roughly the populations of New York City and Los Angeles combined. Moderna, which has a similar type of vaccine as Pfizer, says it will be able to make about 15 million vaccine doses at first, which can treat 7.5 million people again, two shots per person. Now, Daisy Luther points out poor folks aren't going to go straight to the front of the line. As it stands, senior government officials are at the front of the line, then healthcare workers, then employees and residents of nursing homes. Next will be essential workers, those with comorbidities, and the elderly. Each state's governor will decide the pecking order. Dr. Anthony Fauci says that the ordinary person shouldn't expect a vaccination till April, May, or June of 2021. Or, if you have the option of making a $25,000 donation to a hospital, you might be able to bump the line and get your vaccination before the peons do. So the bottom line is don't expect all this to happen quickly. Don't expect the jobs to come back, the businesses to reopen, and life to return to normal when the calendar flips to 2021. She says, unless you're rich, you might not ever see that pre-COVID normal again. Now, I know that sounds pretty bleak. It leaves a bitter taste in my mouth to, to even share this with you. But there's a part of me that still holds out hope that with that imperative that, look, things aren't going back to normal, We will have to adapt. We're doing it already. And there are things that are taking place that people are showing how innovative they can be and how adaptable they can be. This is one of the greatest strengths of the American people. It's one of the things that makes me very proud to be an American is we learned a long time ago, I mean back when they first landed on the continent, how to adapt and to make things work. We're still up to the task. I think the biggest obstacle that we're going to have to get past is that it's been trained into us for many generations now that, well, before you do anything, you have to ask permission. No, I think permissionless innovation is the way to go here. And I congratulate those who are already hard at work on whatever comes next. The ones who aren't waiting for official permission 
create something that actually works. We need to be those kind of people. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Ah, there is so much to cover, so little time, but we'll jump right in and get it done anyway. Two quick articles I wanted to touch on in this final segment of this hour. One is an article from Ron Paul, and it's just a reminder. I know you've heard this before, but, but he says it so well. I want to share it with you again, and that is, remember, it is government, not coronavirus, that is killing small business. Dr. Paul says the video of a confrontation between uh, Ventura County, California health officials and restaurant owner Anton Van Happen has gone viral. The health officials were ordering Mr. Van Happen to close his business because he allegedly violated California's ban on outdoor dining. Mr. Van Happen asked the health department if the government will pay his employees and his rent while his business is indefinitely closed. Now, Ron Paul says Mr. Van Happen's hardly the only small business owner worried about how to pay bills during the lockdowns. Many small businesses operate on a narrow profit margin, so being forced to temporarily shut down or limit the number of customers they can serve is a virtual death sentence. He says the lockdowns have already caused as many as 200,000 small businesses to permanently close. Lockdowns, by shrinking the number of employers, lead to long-term unemployment or lower wages for many workers. And while governments have terrorized small businesses, they have typically deemed the big chain stores essential businesses so they can remain open. The lockdowns are thus another government policy that gives big businesses a competitive advantage over their smaller competitors. The benefits big businesses get from the lockdowns, including fewer competitors, more customers, and a job market with more workers competing for fewer jobs, may explain why many big businesses aren't fighting the lockdowns. Instead, Most big retail chains are requiring their workers and customers to wear masks. Many big businesses may soon deny service to those who refuse to receive a COVID vaccine. One would think that progressives who claim to oppose policies that benefit big corporations like Walmart, Target, and Amazon would oppose the lockdowns. Sadly, even many progressives are unquestioningly parroting the COVID propaganda and demonizing those who dissent. He says, by slowing down the development of herd immunity among the population, the lockdowns could put those truly at risk in greater danger. Lockdowns have also had negative effects such as increasing dr- increases in drug and alcohol abuse and increases in domestic violence. Meanwhile, many school children are deprived of their opportunity to interact with their teachers and their peers. Instead, these children are subjected to the fraud of virtual learning. He says resistance to COVID tyranny is growing as more people figure out that lockdowns and mandates are both unnecessary and harmful. This resistance was largely started by small business owners faced with a choice between obeying the government and making sure they and their employees can feed their families. Small business owners have been leaders in recent anti-lockdown protests across America. Eventually, the resistance will grow to the point where politicians will be forced to either double down on authoritarianism or admit the lockdowns were a mistake. Either way, he says, those of us who know the truth must resist the COVID tyranny until government officials no longer terrorize small businesses for the crime of serving willing consumers. Bam! He can just drop the mic and walk away. 
I just love how Ron Paul puts it into perspective. And, and by the way, the resistance is growing. There are people who are very openly <clears throat> telling small business owners. I think Washington State right now is actually leading out with a group of people who are just telling these business owners, look, if you comply, you will lose everything you have. That's a foregone conclusion. If you comply, it's going to destroy your business. So you don't have anything to lose by resisting, by staying open, by going underground if necessary. And furthermore, they're telling them, we will support you. We will be there for you. But you've got to have the backbone to stand up. And having that backbone, I know it's it's risky. It definitely puts a target on you. But it's worth it. In the end, it is worth it. I just hope enough people can can find that to, that courage to act soon enough. By the way, I, I want to also share, and this will be in the show notes, so I would encourage you, go to thebrianhydeshow.com, check out the show notes. The American Revolution was a culture war. This is from Ryan McMacken. And I don't know if you've thought much about this. Clearly, we are in a culture war right now. And, and when you look at, uh, you know, the, the culture, the, the cancel culture, the woke culture that's doing everything it can to erase every vestige of American history that came before us because it was all wrong and it was all racist and it was all sexist and, you know, it, it just doesn't fit up to their exacting standards. Oh, the arrogance of looking, you know, looking at the past through the lens of your current time and your current understanding, especially when it's as slanted and, and twisted as uh, modern intersectionality and, and uh, critical race theory is. But I hadn't really thought of it in terms of, you know, the American Revolution. That, too, was a culture war. Ryan McMacken says, 247 years ago this month, a group of American opponents of the Crown's tax policy donned disguises and set about methodically destroying a shipment of tea imported into Boston by the East India Company. The vandals trespassed on privately owned ships in Boston Harbor and threw the tea into the ocean. Now, these protesters were thorough. Not content with having destroyed most of the company's imported tea that night, the activists later discovered another tea shipment which had been unloaded at a warehouse in Boston. So the activists then broke into the warehouse and destroyed that tea, too. Total damages amounted to more than $1.5 million in today's dollars. This was the work of the Sons of Liberty, a group led in part by Samuel Adams and which would become known for acts of resistance, arson, and violence committed against tax collectors and other agents of the Crown. Notably, however, as time went on, acts of resistance in America escalated, at first into widespread mob violence, then into military action and guerrilla warfare. Why did many Americans either engage in this behavior or support it? Well, the simplistic answer has long been, well, the colonists were angry. They were being subjected to taxation without representation. Now, that's the simplistic version of history often taught in grade school. But the reality, of course, is that the violence between patriots and their former countrymen eventually became a deeply seated and violent culture war. In other words, it wasn't just about taxes. Yeah, the taxation without representation argument endures because it's useful for the regime and its backers. Advocates for the political status quo say, see, there's no need for anything like the Boston Tea Party today because Americans enjoy representation in Congress. We're told the taxation and the regulatory state are all necessary, moral, and legitimate because the voters are, quote, represented. Even conservatives who often claim to be for small government. 
and oppose radical opposition to the regime, such as secession, on the grounds that, that political resistance movements are only acceptable when there is no political representation. The implication is that since the United States holds elections every now and then, no political action outside of voting and maybe a little sign-waving is allowed. Now, it's unlikely the Sons of Liberty would have bought this argument. The small number of millionaires who meet in Washington, D.C. nowadays are hardly representative of the American public back home. The 1770s equivalent would have consisted of throwing the Americans a few bones in the form of a handful of votes in Parliament with seats to be reliably held by a few wealthy colonists far beyond the reach or influence of the average member of the Sons of Liberty. But Ryan McMacken says attempts to frame the revolution as a conflict over taxes misses the point. Political representation was not the real issue. We know this because when the 1778 Carlisle Peace Commission offered representation in Parliament to the Continental Congress as part of a negotiated conclusion to the war, that offer was rejected. It's because the revolution had gone far beyond just complaints about taxation. This was one issue among many. He says the revolution quickly became a culture war in which self-styled Americans were taking up arms against a foreign, immoral, and corrupt oppressor. Mere offers of representation were hardly sufficient at this point, and it's unlikely any such offers were going to be enough after the events of 1775 when the British finally marched into Massachusetts and opened fire on American militiamen. After that, the war had become, to use Rothbard's term, a war of national liberation. The ideological and psychological divide perhaps explains the ferocity with which the American revolutionaries resisted British rule. By the way, Ryan McMacken doesn't pull any punches here. He points out it was the patriots who initiated real violence, and sometimes it was against innocence. Then he asks, how big is the cultural divide in America? He says, we have yet to reach the proportions experienced during the Revolution, or in that matter, during the 1850s in the lead-up to the American Civil War. But if hostilities reach this point, he says, there will be little use in discussions over the size of tax burden, mask mandates, or nuances of abortion policy. The disdain felt by each side for the other side will be far beyond mere compromises over arcane matters of policy. And he says, just as in discussions of taxation without representation, just as they miss the real currents underlying the American rebellion, any view of the current crisis that ignores the ongoing culture war will fail to identify the causes. By the way, he says, decentralizing power, had it been offered back in 1770, could have avoided bloodshed back then. So maybe we should be looking at something similar today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.